You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and WattWatchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as is usual, uh, David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? Giles, I'm well. Uh, just back from quite an exciting uh, smart energy conference, as are you, and as is our special guest for this evening. Absolutely, yes. Like, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Alex Hewitt, the chairman of CWP Renewables. Um, Alex, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Hi, Giles, and hi, David. Look, Alex, CWP is um, one of the most interesting renewable energy developers in Australia. For a start, you are one of the people behind what is, I believe, the biggest wind and solar project in the world in the Pilbara and looking at possibilities of exports to Asia as well as sort of underpinning a massive manufacturing base in that region. region. And you've also got a whole list of other projects around the country, including the Sapphire Wind Project, which is um, pretty much complete, I think, and looking to add solar and storage. But before we get into the detail of those, and I know David is hungry to do so as well, I'd just like to sort of start with the big picture. Australia, as we've seen this week from various reports, has installed a remarkable amount of uh, renewable energy in the last year um, and the year before, and probably this year too, as we meet the renewable energy target that we will in fact likely exceed. exceed. CWP Renewables has been at the forefront of this with several major developments. What The big question though is what happens next? For you, what is needed what what will happen next and what is needed to be done because even though we're now getting towards 20 percent renewables and above that's basically just the start of the transition isn't it yes yes it is giles and uh look it's exciting things are moving along of course the drop in the price of solar and wind together the drop in the price of renewables is moving things along at a pace but um it's not fast enough <laughs> you know um I mean, what are we doing? We've got the grassroots platform, which we're building out, which is 1.3 gigawatts across uh, the, the eastern states, mainly New South Wales, which we're doing with the partners group. You know, that's steady as she goes. They're good projects. Um, the uh, the funding is all secured and, and uh, we've got 400 meg operating and in construction and we're going to finance another 360 this year. These are all exciting numbers and they're big, but um, gee whiz, look at Look at the summer we've just had, um, uh, and and uh, you know how much more could we do? Uh, I'll just leave the Western Australian project aside, but um, uh, yeah, I I think you've had various guests on your podcast talking about the need for climate action and the fact that we are in a climate emergency. Uh, the scientists say we're approaching one degree now, and we're on track for three. That's going to be scary. We need to get the messaging out. So there's so much to do. Um, I think uh, the pace is good, but we've got to double down and then double down again. And, Are there uh, any policies that... Go on, go on, go on, Charles. Oh, sorry, I'll just put in one more before you, David. Um, are there any policies out there that um, look attractive to you? We've got a federal election coming up in, um, 
I'm guessing four, five, six weeks. Uh, we'll find out soon enough after the release of this podcast, I'd imagine. Um, what, what policies are attracting you and, and what do you think needs to be done? Well, Labor are certainly on track with all their policies there. And uh, and I think it's a it's a reasonable number, a, a target to, to, to go for. I think we the industry can certainly step up to that. Let's also keep in mind when I talk about the industry, we're in the electricity sector, um, and that has only 35% of the of the overall emissions. So it's only a piece of the of what's needed. Um, the oh, look, there's so many policies around. I, I won't go into detail, and I think there are people that are much closer to it than I. Ultimately, we we're going to need to have a price on carbon. Um, renewables is coming in, and it's going to push out coal, but. Wouldn't it make sense to push out the the, uh, the dirtiest coal first? And at the moment, without a carbon price, it's going to hang around until the end. That's right. Renewables pushes out the highest cost generation, which often tends to be gas or, or, or the highest marginal cost coal, which might happen to be in New South Wales rather than the highest carbon emissions. I've, I've always thought that you need a carbon tax, which I think is administratively simpler. Uh, than, a, than a carbon price. Together with a renewables policy, the two go hand in hand. But uh, Alex, you, met, you, met, you did mention you were uh, building out 400 uh, megawatts this year. And I think you have, is it the uh, BOGO? Uh, excuse me if I've got that, uh, pronounced that wrongly. Bango. Bango, excuse me. I, you should think I'd be able to remember that. Um, how, how are you finding the some other people have told me that it's a bit tougher at the moment, whether it's transmission restriction, uh, restrictions or MLF uh, uh, surprises. Um, it, uh, it's not as easy as it was a year or, or the, I mean, and the REC price is down. Uh, how are you finding acceptance, I guess, and financing? Um, yeah, well, it's, uh, we for, so Bango on Bango, we, we we hope to close that one in June. Um, we have a, a hundred megawatt uh, uh, PPA, which is uh, which we've won with uh, with Snowy. Um, we'll build out to two hundred and forty. Um, our partners, the Partners Group, are, are a great bunch of investors. They're they're very pragmatic, and we'll do a, a similar uh, strategy to, to to Sapphire, where we went uh, part merchant and, and part contracted, which enables us to, to build more earlier and then carry on with offerings to, uh, to others, particularly corporates, with uh, the certainty that they have a, a wind or a, or a solar farm that's going to deliver. Um, with the grid, uh, yeah, look, it's a challenge. Uh, there are so many grid applications at the moment. Um, the, uh, we're, we're working with Transgrid, uh, in New South Wales, they're great to work with, and look, we uh, they're doing what they can to move things along. But of course, then there's AEMO, which have to uh, approve the the uh, the grid um, performance standards. And uh, look, that one's a bit frustrating because you tend to be uh, it's like being in a queue with a blindfold. You, you don't really know when you're going to get to where you need to be. And I appreciate everyone's working very hard at this, and there's a lot happening. Um, but I do think that it, it's very clear that some of the rules need to change. Um, and I know there's a lot of work going on in that area. Um, with the MLF shock, well, yeah, we, we had an MLF shock up on Sapphire about uh, with the last MLF round about a year and a bit ago. Um, and that was to do with the reversal of uh, power going down from Queensland rather than up to Queensland. 
and these jolts uh, yeah, represent a, a high level of uncertainty and um, we had a pretty big jolt and some people had doubled that in the in the more recent uh, MLF announcement so something's got to be done there otherwise the price of that uncertainty will flow through also into into pricing and there'll be a price correction so i think there'll be price correction anyway with regards to more investment in the grid as as well as levels of uncertainty and i think the the sooner they can clear up the uncertainty and i'm sure there won't be a perfect solution and nor nor do i think we should be aiming for a perfect solution i think they need a, a fairly quick fix uh to maintain a momentum so just on the MLFs, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, if you had a, a 10-year fixed MLF, and I, I presume that one of the complaints I hear is there's just not enough visibility about uh, other projects and how they're going to affect MLFs. Uh, I mean, is, do you have any preference? You just want uh, something, I mean, we all need certainty, don't we? It's help, certainty is a, a very desirable thing in getting your cost of capital down particularly risk that can be avoided if the uh, AEMO uh, would do be a bit more efficient. I mean, the other thing I've heard is they're requiring everyone to redo all their studies and uh, frequently and just the level of uh, time and cost and effort um, for getting something through AEMO now is in of itself, right? And I don't want to be particularly critical of AEMO, but I, I just wonder whether they and the AMC are, are really keeping up with the required rate of change or whether an even better job couldn't be done. Well, indeed, it does. It comes down to resourcing. It comes down to, to money and allocation of it. Uh, clearly, there's, um, there's got to be a lot done. I think when it comes to uncertainty, you know, we, we, in the past, we've done, when we've financed wind farms, you do MLF studies, you have a, a, I guess, a level of, of comfort that over the next few years it's not going to go up and down much more than, uh, you know, a few percent, 2% here or 2% there. Um, on the long term, it's harder to predict, but, you know, we build all of these things into financial models, which investors and banks look at very closely, and they get a level of comfort. But then after, if you build something and 12 months later, it goes down by 15%, that's a, a real shock to the system. So, you know, maybe we don't have a fixed MLF, maybe it's a, a band or a floor that says, you know, okay, it goes down up down up down to 7%. There are other ideas flying around, and as I say, there's... Uh, there's quite a lot of effort going in and people which are far more knowledgeable than I in uh, the, the vagaries of calculating and allocating losses. Um, but I don't think we want to be here in another two years still trying to figure this out. Um, better to get a quick solution that is reasonable rather than you know doing a, 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 the major overhaul which, which some are talking about. I'm just wondering. I'd just, just like to hop in here and just, um, just in case people are not too sure what MLF is, that start, stands for marginal loss factors, and it's basically um, dictates the amount of um, electricity that might be um, generated by a wind farm or a solar farm or any other generator for that matter, and then is credited um, as having arrived at the other end to a customer. So, um, 
the problem's been in the last couple of um, years is that the MLS, the marginal loss factors for many uh, new generators and existing ones have been downgraded significantly because it's been considered that the uh, grid has been constrained and is too far away from load and, and whatever. Um, just on that, um, Alex, I'm just interested to know, Silverton, you mentioned um, we've got a 270 megawatt wind farm that suffered a downgrade in MLFs no, last so year. Sapphire, sorry, gosh, yeah, no, Silverton. Right. Sorry, Silverton belongs to AGL and got an even bigger MLF downgrade. And Indeed. That's over, that's over there. Sorry, so Sapphire, my apologies, 270 mm. megawatts. You're also thinking about putting a large solar project there as well as a battery storage project there. To what extent is this actually um, influenced by the situation with, with MLFs? And I'm just wondering what the other factors are that um, that you're taking into consideration when you're thinking of an expansion to um, adding in solar and storage to an existing wind farm? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the MLF went b back up again this year, <laughs> which is a good news story for Congratulations. <laughs> I think we were one of the few. So we had a shock last year and it went back up again this year. Um, also, there's when you've got solar wind, of course, it's all about time of day and trying to get generation. Uh, MLF is sensitive to that. You've got battery storage in there, which is helping the situation. So there are a number of other um, factors, dimensions to decision making on levels of investment. We've always seen the site as a fantastic solar and wind resource, which it is. And um, complemented with a small amount of battery means that we can get more out of the infrastructure, the, trans the uh, transformers, for example. We can improve our situation with the grid. We can also start to uh, sell dispatchable power. And, you know, that all of these things together uh, certainly um, tick all the boxes for investment. And, and there'll be more. It's, it's, a, it's a very good template. Not all sites have great solar resource where there's wind, but... Um, I, I, I also, you know, the, there's a lot of focus on MLFs at the moment because it's so current and it really did shock a number of the, uh, the renewable developments. Yeah, maybe that shock was needed, but um, <laughs> we've got to fix it. But fix it, we can. This is, this is a, a bit of policy, and a bit of sensible um, investment. Um, we've got a job to do. There's a lot more to, to go in. So... I don't think it's this is a this is a bit of a speed bump, but um, it'll get fixed, I'm sure. <laughs> and Alex, the uh, the snowy PPA uh, prices that I've heard, and I, I, I'm not really comment on them, but I, I I would mention that I heard numbers, you know, uh, about forty three dollars fifty, rightly or wrongly. That's, of course, a very attractive price, but the, you'd find a lot of people that say that no matter how much the cost reductions in wind have been, the actual overall required price for 100% of the project uh, might be a bit higher than that. Uh, and so obviously it was fairly competitively bid, I'm imagining. Now, I'm just wondering if, for instance, the Labor Party federally does get in, and I think it's reasonable to speculate about that given the opinion polls and the and the betting odds. Uh, um, Mark Butler has come on this very podcast and told us that we're, he's going to put money into the CEFC for reverse auctions. Um, um, do you, is that something that you think would be attractive to CWP? Have you got a list of projects that would in due course be able to, to bid into that? 
Um, yes, David, we've got a we've got a pipeline of projects, um, and we do like to get uh, at cert, a certain level of it contracted, ideally around fifty percent, and um, and and that gives uh, our investors enough uh, enough confidence to to go forward, and also to get a bit of debt in the project. Um, other investors may need a higher level of uh, of contracted income, but but yes, the government. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to do this through through the CEFC, and um, I, I think um, we would continue to adopt the same strategy as we are at the moment because that we see a, a lot of corporates coming out, um, coming into uh, to buying renewable energy. They're adopting more um, uh, sustainable focused uh, procurement. I mean, a good example is the Commonwealth Bank, which has gone to RE100, which is 100% renewable, or a path to it, and they've bought from Sapphire in a, in a fixed block. Um, it, it's a good initiative. And, and do you see the corporate PPA market as the level of inquiry there, I don't know, growing steady? I mean, if I could just ask about current market conditions and if you had any comments generally on the, on the various... Uh, you know, off-taker segments that you, you see around the place. I mean, there's the big, re the REC targets obviously been met. Um, uh, there's a bit of a sort of uh, uh, EPC costs in solar have probably gone up. Uh, um, you know, how, how are you feeling about things? <laughs> How are you feeling about pricing? And look, first of all, the, the corporates are still coming and they're engaging consultants. There's a number of them around in the market which are helping them, um, which is good. Uh, the, uh, they're going up a learning curve. They're finding that, um, you know, if they want to go out further than three years and go out to five or seven or 10, 15 in some cases, they can do some really good deals. So the economics are there for them. Um, and um, well, that, that they will they will certainly get some better electricity prices than they are paying at the moment um, in their in their most of their current arrangements. So that's what that of course what's driving the market. The pricing longer term. I mean, technology pricing is dropping. It'll, that'll continue. Uh, we're seeing affirming pricing, of course. I think that that's relative. Yeah, it's relatively high at the moment, but that should drop. If anything, uh, particularly with storage pricing coming down, um, you know, firming's coming from storage, hydro, from gas. Gas prices are high, of course. Um, but uh, over the longer term, I can see those dropping along with the, uh, the technology prices. More investment perhaps in the grid. Uh, I think a lot of the high prices will continue, though, because of the level of uncertainty. And until things settle down, that will continue. The other thing is we are... I mean, at the end of the day, we're going through a transition, and transitions do cost. Um, so I can, I can, it'll be choppy. I mean, as big coal plants shut down, and personally, I don't believe in the curve which shows them all magically shutting down when they reach their 50-year end of life. They're going to be forced out earlier, um, and as they, as these shut down, there'll be a, some choppy supply and demand, and that'll create some choppy pricing. So. Yeah, yeah, and, that, and that'll continue for a while. I agree with that. And I'm going to hand back to Giles in a second, but I, I, I do want to ask one pro question about the Pilbara project. Uh, um, I guess there's the switch from the transmission, uh, the AC, DC link uh, uh, through to hydrogen. It's not so much the reasons for that, but I, I, 
some work I was academic work I was associated with uh, you didn't make the actual pricing of um, hydrogen look all that good even using renewable electricity it's just that the electrolysis the losses in the process and the electrolysis and the storage and everything it still seemed to end up as uh, moderately expensive energy uh, um, but that was just an academic piece of work done a year ago and perhaps uh, we were missing what what was really happening I'm sure you probably weren't missing too much, but except perhaps one thing was the scale. I've looked at quite a few studies in this area, and uh, the scale, of course, is more about smaller-scale renewables going into smaller-scale electrolysis. I think this is the first one of its type to really reach for that grand scale where um, a, a different set of metrics start to, to come into play. It, it's on a trajectory, David. It's not there right this 10 seconds but we're very confident in the trajectory and it's coming very very quickly so we've got two things yeah, there's two things going in our favor of course one we have incredibly cheap power and fantastic wind and solar resource up there in the pilbara um, cheapest power certainly in asia and some of the cheapest there's a couple of other sites but in difficult places in the world which is where it's cheaper or as cheap but we're, we're, we are very cheap in terms of electricity and the other thing is the price of the electrolysis is coming down all the time and we've seen some very interesting numbers fairly recently. So we're at a concept stage at the moment, it's still fluid, but we're very confident that the metrics are all aligning, the planets are aligning for this project. It gets more and more exciting all the time. <laughs> So certainly to us as observers, it's incredibly exciting. I, 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 and I, I wish you all the very, very best with it. I just think as an Australian, it'd be absolutely fantastic. Over to you, Giles. Well, you've got me intrigued, um, Alex. Um, just to remind listeners, this is actually an 11 gigawatt project um, suggested for the Pilbara region of northwest Australia, um, about 30, meet, 30 kilometres inland, um, about 7.5 gigawatts at this stage of wind, 3.5 gigawatts of solar. Fascinating mix. You, you said, Alex, that it was the... Um, the, the, the cheapest um, electricity in Asia. Um, I wonder if you can just tease us a little bit with the price. Oh, no, I can't. Um, <laughs> I thought ask anyway. <laughs> watch this space. But what I will tell you, Giles, is that the price has been coming down over the last you know, uh, 18 months. Every time we go back to our numbers, you know, we're working with our, with our partners on this and, um, you know, we, we're looking at, at technology, which is, I wouldn't say over the horizon, but it's a few years away. So we'll be financing this in three years' time. So things are... What, what, things... Sort of, what sort of technology are you talking about? Are you talking about the latest in solar panels and tracking technology? Are you talking about the latest in wind turbines and their height and reach? All of the above. You've got it in one. Yeah. It's, it's not radically new technology. It's just wind turbine technology but, but is... Bigger and higher, <laughs> you know. It's uh, and, and and the costs are coming down. And if, if you, you you did sort of say it was the cheapest in Asia and comparable with some of the other places in the world, which may be harder to deal with. So I'm guessing we're talking in the range of the sort of the you know, the twenty dollars American um, dollars a, a megawatt hour and um, in there and thereabouts. Getting in that direction, yeah. It's on a trajectory. It's in still dropping, but it's a, but it's uh, look. It's we, we started this in well, it was 2015. Um, it was ambitious, it was audacious, <laughs> and some people have think, think we're crazy, but it's, it's really got momentum. 
Um, it's got a lot of support from Western Australian government. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 everything's aligning. Um, Development's a funny thing, you know, if you wait till everything's perfect, it's too late. So <laughs> we're, we're always looking ahead a little bit, um, even when we start. I mean, we're, we're not a big company. We're not a massive multi-billion dollar company. CWP is a little bunch we pulled together. I founded it with a couple of other guys back in 2000 and when was it? 2005. Uh, in 2006, we marched into Romania. It hadn't got any renewables there of any scale. I think it had one turbine. Um, and we quickly started a, what we thought was 150 and went to 600 megawatts and had to do 400 land parcels. We financed it at $2 billion a week before Lehman's collapsed and went on to build over the next four years the largest wind farm in, in, in Europe. Um, it, it, it's kind of amazing how when you start these things and, and you, you stick with them and you bring on the right partners and you keep the faith and <laughs> you, you get there. But you don't necessarily have all the right answers right at the very start. So when you're thinking about this Pilbara project and you're talking about the low cost of wind and electricity and you're talking about the falling cost of electrolysis, what are you then competing with? Because at the moment you're talking about green hydrogen exports, there's demand growing in Japan and Korea and other Asian countries looking for fuels, looking for green fuels to import into their countries. So are you looking then to compete with the cost of LNG gas exports and presumably then that gives you a reasonably high margin to play with or is that not quite the case? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So if you look at, um, so hydrogen goes into ammonia and methanol. If we look at ammonia, there's green ammonia, there's brown ammonia. There's even the one in between, the one I call blue ammonia. But, um, you know, brown ammonia is still very cheap. It's always worked off uh, very cheap LNG um, and, and still is. But if we take Japan and their plans, and you may be aware of them, their 10-year plan to the hydrogen economy, and their Clean Power Act, it's all about, um, you know, cleaning up. So they don't want brown uh, ammonia going into their power plants. They want to in initially put green ammonia into co-firing with coal to bring down emissions and eventually replace the gas turbines uh, or the gas with, with, with green ammonia. This is the direction they're going. There's a lot of work being done in, in uh, R&D. It's not our... That's not what we're doing, but we're following that, that market very, very closely. We've got a little crack team of millennials constantly researching and analysing, and uh, that's the direction it's going. Does it uh, compete with brown ammonia today? No, it's quite a bit higher. Does it compete in about two or three years' time? It gets to a point where it's very attractive for countries like Japan and Korea, and Japan in particular has said they will be only buying green hydrogen green ammonia and i think hydrogen can be a transition fuel because it, it has this natural transport application potentially as well one of the more interesting little snippets i saw at a at the smart energy conference was the comment that anheuser bush are converting a whole bunch of uh, their delivery fleet they're actually doing it and they wouldn't be doing it unless there was a reason uh over over to hydrogen yeah no that's right david that's why it's really exciting too because when i look at i think i did a speech two days ago at the, at the conference you were mentioning, the Smart, Smart Energy um, conference, that um, was about sapphire. And, um, you know, we're dealing with uh, dropping emissions in the electricity sector on the grid. Um, I think I made the point that sapphire is just under $1 billion, but we're going to need 200 sapphires to 
replace all the the uh, non-renewable uh, generation in Australia. So it's a, that's a massive t- task, but hey, that's only 35% of the emissions in Australia. You've got then the industrial sector, the transport sector, the agricultural sector, and some of that's going to be really tough. With, uh, with hydrogen, it does tend to touch all those other sectors, so it will have a massive impact. It's got a huge part to play, and you watch this space. It, it, there is so much happening. I, I really wasn't on top of this a couple of years ago, and I'm going up a, a very steep learning curve. I'd just like to ask one more question about the Pilbara um, project, um, Alex, and that's about the domestic element of it. Um, you do hope to have three gigawatts um, providing electricity to the domestic market. Now, presumably what you're thinking about then is creating, we're well, going to need a bigger grid up there, and presumably you're, crea- you're looking to create demand in that region, is that right? Um, by having cheap electricity, you may encourage industry or manufacturing, or are you thinking about HV um, um, high-voltage power lines to um, elsewhere in the country? Uh, not high-voltage HVDC elsewhere. I mean, we don't see it going down to Perth or across to the East Coast, no. Um, we will uh, get a line going down towards the Pilbara and the uh, the government and the Pilbara Re- Development Corporation are very keen on that. Obviously, the, uh, the power uh, generation down there is expensive and it can be a lot cheaper if we can get a transmission line down to join up with the, the NWIS and some of the other privately owned um, lines. We, we hope others will, will embrace that and other groups and consortia are. So there's a lot of, there is activity in that area. And what we'll do is provide a, a switchboard for some cheap energy. And at this stage, we've said we'll ring fence three gigawatts for, um, for that, which is still a, a huge amount of power. Well, I think uh, 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 probably, uh, Alex, uh, taking a lot of your time up today. And uh, as I said at the outset, I'm uh, very grateful to have the opportunity to do this interview, and uh, as is Giles. And uh, um, uh, just wish you all the best, I think, is what all I can say at this point. Yeah, look, thanks, Absolutely. David. And, um, and thanks, Giles. Could I just and say so, Alex, before did... we go? Yeah, sure. I just wanted Absolutely. to, um, you know, you were at the conference and uh, the initiative of the Smart Energy Council for the Transition Fund. I think this is, a super, this is so timely. It's, it's important. And uh, so I'm sure a lot of uh, the, the members of the council and the CEC and people in the sector, hopefully listening, I'm sure they are, to, to your podcasts. And uh, it's just a bit of a... Uh, a it's not really a plea it's yeah step up guys (laughs) get involved in this you better explain exactly what this transition fund is alex yeah well i suggest you also get uh, wayne or john on from smart energy council to give you a bit more of a rundown but in a nutshell um it's a it's a for me it's about the messaging and i think that's part of it but it's 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 getting it's getting a much clearer message out into the general uh, space to the people of Australia, simple and compelling on the need for doubling down on renewables and on climate change action. Um, I mean, a great example of this, and I urge any of your listeners to jump onto TED and listen to the speech by Greta, Greta Thunberg, who um, is the young lady from, uh, she's only 15 years old, from Sweden, who did, who did the... Um, did, 
the, uh, who, who was the, the instigator of all the school strikes. Uh, that speech is, is amazing. And uh, I think, uh, listen to that and then ring up the Smart Energy Council because it, it's, um, she's, uh, I, I think if you look her up, she's being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this year and she's only 15. Indeed, but, no, no, it's a, um, it's a gripping speech. It, it is. It but is. she's a female, so she's got no chance, but anyway. No, well, she has. If you listen to that speech, it is it is very compelling. And I, I just get sick of all the misinformation that's being peddled in politics. It's been pretty ugly over the last few years, and it just the last year it's been at an all-time low. Misinformation, it thrives in a world of complexity, and the power sector is complex, all the balancing of supply and demand, the time of day, the, the way it's structured, and also the climate change science can be complex as well. So when you jump into that world... Politicians and lobby groups can peddle all sorts of misinformation and push to push their ideals and power plays. So, and it's shameful. It really is. So, I think we need to, as a sector, really get behind initiatives like what they're doing in the Smart Energy Council with the Transition Fund to get a war chest, if you like, a, some funding and resources to get these simple messages out to educate. And it's just so important. Get the facts out. Well, exactly. Well, if you thought that the um, level of um, the the uh, tenor of the argument was pretty low over the last twelve months, wait for the next five or six weeks as we head into the election, and um, it's extraordinary some of the reactions to the electric vehicle policy that was announced by Labor, with some of the Conservatives saying they prefer to walk to Dubbo rather than uh, try with an try it with an electric vehicle. But um, anyway, look, Alex, um, I'd like to just join um, Echo David's thoughts and thanks uh, for joining the podcast. Um, I'd like to thank you um, to say thanks to our sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and What Watches. And um, thanks to all the listeners for joining this podcast. Um, Alex, um, all the best in the future with your projects. Thank you very much, Charles. And uh, it's been a pleasure being on. Okay. And bye, David. Cheers now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.